where John chapter 20, we're looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every time we gather on a Sunday, it is, um, it is Resurrection Sunday. I know we kind of call Easter Sunday Resurrection Sunday, but every time we gather, we gather on this day because it is uh, to mark the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the grave. And he is the first fruits of those of us who will be raised with him in Christ through faith in him. And so his resurrection is a kind of a foretaste of our resurrection. And so uh, today we're going to be looking at John chapter 20, uh, all of 20 verses, uh, verses 1 through uh, 31. And just as a reminder of John's gospel, here's the, the main piece to get the full scope of John's gospel. There was the prologue where in the beginning was, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we celebrate here in this Advent season. There's the prologue. And then there was the public ministry of Jesus that went from the rest of John chapter 1 through John chapter 12. There was the private ministry of Jesus with just his disciples up in the upper room as he was instructing them. John chapters 13 through 17. And then we had the passion ministry of Jesus, which was his suffering on the cross. And here's the climax of that suffering of Jesus is that he is raised from the dead. And so with that in our minds, let's, um, let me read as you follow along John chapter 20. And I invite you, if you're able, to stand uh, for the reading of God's word this morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she, uh, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, take me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my fingers into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. And God, indeed, thank you for your word and having heard it. As now we revisit these, these uh, verses and there's much here that we can explore. We just pray that you guide us in this time. We reflect on some of these key moments and that may those reflections penetrate into our hearts, cause us to uh, love you more and more and we give you thanks and praise in jesus name and all god's people said amen and friends you may be seated well there is much that we can cover in this uh, chapter um it is a fantastic story about the resurrection and all four gospels matthew mark luke and john record the resurrection of jesus christ and all of them have different emphases and there's uh, different elements that are in, uh, in the Gospels. And John has a couple of, of unique ones. And, um, and so we're going to, instead of drawing in and looking at all of the different Gospel sources, we're just going to focus here on what John's Gospel presents to us uh, here. In the other Gospels, I will say this, that the other Gospels uh, say that there are other people that are with Mary when she goes to visit the tomb, uh, when Jesus is there, or when she goes to visit the tomb. And... Um, and so you get a hint of that here in this passage when Mary does go to the tomb, but then uh, it, it just lists just Mary as being there. But, uh, but in verse 3 it says, and we do not know where they have laid him. So this kind of uh, adds to 
in corresponds with the other gospel accounts that then Mary had some other women that were there uh, with her at the tomb. So today I want to go through just John's gospel. I want to look at what he's done here and how he presents this account and the emphases that he has. And to do so, I want us to guide us through in five uh, key points here, five, five scenes in this uh, in John's resurrection account. First one is the empty tomb is discovered. It's in, discovered by, by Mary um, and the others who are with her, though John just mentions Mary. And then she runs to go get Peter and John. And then they come back and see it. So this is the discovery of the empty tomb. They don't see Jesus yet. It's just the discovery of the empty tomb. And notice that it occurs on, it says there, the first day of the week. This is after the Sabbath, because remember, Jesus was crucified. It was on the, um, um, the, the week of Passover. They did not want to have the bodies over on the, the, on the cross during the, the Sabbath at the end of the Passover. So they broke the bones of all of the, the criminals, but not of Jesus. He had given up his spirit. And so they took his body off the cross and they buried him in the tomb. And so it says that after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week, they're gathering, uh, they're going to the tomb. And this is where um, this uh, event is now taking place. And what a transformational event that this really is. Notice that when Mary goes, she sees that the tomb is empty that the stone has been rolled away so she runs back this is outside of the gates of jerusalem she runs back and then goes tells simon peter and then it says the other disciple which we've seen many times throughout john's gospel this is john's reference to himself so this is peter and john she goes and tells peter and john so it says the other disciple the one whom jesus loved and mary says they've taken the lord away so then Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. And I always just think that this is kind of funny if you understand that John is writing this gospel and he's referring to himself in the third person as the other, uh, the other disciple. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I mean, he's like, why does he put this in here? Why is John putting this in here? He's like, and by the way, I'm faster than Peter. You know, he may be the rock of the church, and boy, he is a rock, because I'm fleet of foot, and he is not. Like, why does he put this in here? But I think that's a, 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 it's always been comical to me, and, um, but I think that there's really, it, it's actually more than just I am faster. I think that there's some interesting things here at play. Notice that you have two witnesses that are going to see this, this tomb empty, uh, and remember, the scriptures say it's on the testimony of, of, of two or more witnesses, right? So you have Peter and John going to the tomb, and it just so happens that John gets there first but doesn't go in, but can see what's on the inside. And then Peter passes him, and he goes in, and then he sees the same thing that John says. So in, in a way, I, I don't know, but in a way, it does kind of convey the idea that the scene was undisturbed. There was, there was no one person in the tomb that was there alone with the evidence. It wasn't that there was only one person that was there and goes, oh, and by the way, look at here's, here's all of the, uh, the, the linens and everything. It was, it was seen by two people in such a way that, uh, that, that, 
the testimony of it was that they both came in, they both saw uh, that neither of them could have tampered with anything. Maybe that's what John was getting at. I don't know. Maybe it just could be saying he was just faster. But I like the idea is that here we have the two witnesses and that the evidence is not tampered in any way. And notice that they go in and they say the linen cloths, and this is connected to what we, we saw in the previous week about them wrapping Jesus in linen in preparation for burial. Now, just as a reminder of how they would do ancient burials is they would, uh, in, uh, in the ancient Near Eastern Jewish times, they would wrap the body up, they would wrap it with spices and they would wrap it with linens, and then they would put it in a tomb which would just kind of be little, little caves in the ground. Sometimes there would be um, a bigger cave and then like little sections um, kind of dug out where they would place the body. And then they would come back a year later after the body had decomposed um, and then it would have just the bones out and then they would pull the bodies out. They would take the bones and then they would put it in a box and then they would put the box away somewhere else. It's, kind of, it's called an ossuary. Um, and so this is, this is what um, the, the ancient practice. So when you see that they show up here and Mary sees that the tomb is empty. She runs back and tells them they show up and they see the linen cloths lying there. Now, why is that significant? Even this, notice in verse, um, verse 6, verse 5. And uh, stooping to look in, this is in reference to Peter, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Excuse me, that's, that's uh, John. And then Peter in verse 6, so Simon Peter came and he went into the tombs and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which would have been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but it, this interesting little detail, but folded up in a place and by itself. Now, one of the, uh, one of the reasons that you see in John's gospel for how you can account, how the Romans could have counted for the disappearance of Jesus was that, well, somebody had come in and stolen the body, that they were grave robbers, and they could perpetuate this notion that he was, was alive. Now, in the other Gospels, it say there was a legion of army, uh, army soldiers there guarding the tomb, and then the angel kind of came, and they were terrified and then went away and then rolled away the stone. John doesn't include any of those details, but he does give us the details about the linen cloths lying there. And this is a very significant piece of evidence because if it was a grave robber, they would just take the whole thing. They wouldn't go to all of the lengths to unwrap all of the linen to steal this badly, badly broken and damaged body of Jesus. No, something miraculous had to have happened for his body to have suffered everything that it had just experienced at the crucifixion for the body to be gone and all of the linens to be there that's of great uh, great significance something exceptional has happened something unexplainable has happened something miraculous has happened and so the disciples go away they're a little perplexed by this and then notice what it says in verse 8 the other disciple again referring to John who had reached the tomb first again I'm faster. Also went in and he saw and believed. And then he adds this in verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Even though Jesus had told that to them, 
even though it, when you go back and look into the scriptures after the resurrection, all, all these scriptures do, do seem to sort of make sense now. They did not get it until it clicked for John when he saw the body was not there, but all of the linen was there. So this is the empty tomb being discovered. Here's the second scene I want us to look at. And that is when Jesus appears to Mary. Now up to this point, Jesus hasn't appeared. They've just seen the empty tomb. And the disciples end up going back to their to their homes, it tells us in verse 10. But Mary, out of great love for her Lord, stays there, and she's outside of the tomb weeping. In verse 12, and she, it says that she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, I want to notice something a little bit about this. Let me back up a little bit. And... Um, there's, there's, uh, there's many skeptics of Christianity who look at the stories or the accounts in the gospel and notice discrepancies between the two. Like one says there was one angel there, and then the other says there were two angels there. And they try to point out some of these, uh, these kind of inconsistencies. I know you've probably heard me, if you've been around a while, you've heard me tell the story about Trey. It was a coworker that I worked with at... Um, uh, was it Olive Garden or Cracker Barrel? I'm getting old. I don't remember now. Uh, it was Olive Garden. Thank you. It was Trey at Olive Garden. Thank you, Brandon. Um, Trey at Olive Garden, who was a Christian, but then he became an atheist. And uh, one of his things that he would always shoot back to me were things like this, the discrepancies in the gospel accounts. And, uh, and so I would always go back home that night and would spend the whole night studying to try to come back to an answer to him. And I'd come back the next day and I'd have an answer. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, and then throw something back at me again. And then I, with that cycle would repeat. Um, but how, how do we understand these different discrepancies there? And I've, I saw this some time ago. A pastor had posted this on Twitter, and I thought it was really, uh, really great. Um, he says, yesterday I woke up, got dressed, and ate breakfast. That's his account, right? He goes, now, in the time I got dressed, I went to the bathroom sink, put, on, put toothpaste on my toothbrush, and brushed my teeth. And he said, well, liberal scholars and atheists would be, aha, he told two different contradictory stories about his morning routine. Right? I thought it's a great example of the type of things that, wait a second, they're just noticing different details. Maybe there were two angels, but maybe one of them spoke. So in Matthew's gospel, it just records the one angel who spoke. Things like that. Anyway, that aside, Mary is now approaches uh, or is sitting there weeping by the tomb. And she sees two angels. And then they said to her this question, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. And then notice this verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know it was Jesus. Now, why, why is this? Some people, again, point this out. This just seems kind of far-fetched. Like, how could she not recognize uh, Jesus? Well, if you just were there at his crucifixion, you were the last one to leave. And he was wrapped up and placed into a tomb. You could be forgiven for not recognizing somebody right away. Also, and it says that they were there early in the morning. One of the gospel writers says it was before dawn, before the, the sun had even come up. So either way, she just doesn't recognize Jesus. 
And so notice that Jesus speaks to her. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? It's a similar question to what the angels asked. And then it says here in verse 15, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, or maybe the caretaker of the tomb area, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell him where you have laid him and, and, I, will, and I will take him away. So not only did she see Jesus, she heard Jesus in verse 15 and still didn't recognize him until verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And you get the impression that she's, she's not even looking in his direction when he says this because it says she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is teacher. It's easy to kind of just overlook that and not realize the significance of what is happening here. She doesn't recognize Jesus. She doesn't even recognize his voice. But something happens when Jesus calls her name. Jesus asks her a question. She thought it was a gardener. She did not assume it was, was Jesus, even though he, she, he'd asked her the question. But when Jesus says one word, just her name, she immediately knew. Now, it could be because, well, you know, a gardener wouldn't know her name, and so that would cause her to raise attention. But more likely, more likely, she knew Jesus, she loved Jesus, and she knew the sound of his voice. And remember what Jesus said about being the shepherd of his sheep in John chapter 10? He says, the sheep hear his voice, speaking of himself as the shepherd, speaking of the shepherd, but referring to himself. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. For they knew his voice. Jesus speaks about that, and here we have his first appearance after his resurrection. Mary doesn't recognize him, and he just says, Mary. And she knows. If you are in Christ, if you are his sheep in his sheepfold, then you know the voice of Jesus. He knows you. He knows your name and has called your name. Has Jesus called your name? Do you love him? If you have repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ and you're baptized in his name and have professed to walk with him, then you're his sheep. He's your shepherd. If all of that is true for you, it's because Jesus knows your name and he has called your name. And when he called your name, you heard and you knew. Thank you, Jesus, for calling our name. And what a great thing for this to have happened at the very lowest point of her, of her heartbreak and her despair. Is your heart filled with grief or with sadness or despair? Mary's was. How many times does it mention her wept or weeping? Verse 11 she stood there weeping outside the tomb. Verse 13, woman, why are you weeping? And indeed, Jesus asks her the same question, which is understandable. Her Lord had not only died, but now he's missing. 
Is your heart filled with grief and despair like, like Mary's? Then might you be comforted by the truth that you are in the fold of a resurrected Savior? Might you be comforted in the midst of earthly sadness and sorrows that your Lord is alive and that he is risen from the dead? Could your heart be refreshed at the thought that despite every tear and trial you face, the resurrected Jesus knows your name? This is what John records for us. And not just for Mary and for the early church, it records it for us too. So in addition to appearing before Mary Magdalene, Jesus appears to his disciples and he does this in two phases, one with Thomas absent and then one with Thomas present. There's much we could look at here in this passage. Notice verses 19 through 23. And it says that it was an evening that day, the first day of the week. So this is the, what we now call the Lord's Day or Sunday, the first day of the week. And so it's later that day. The, the, what has just taken place earlier had happened at dawn or just before dawn, and now it's at evening time of that day, the disciples were gathered together, uh, tucked away perhaps in that upper room. The doors were locked because of fear for the Jews. And then it says that Jesus came and stood among them and says, peace be with you. And then he shows him his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then again, John records for us, it says, peace be with you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, so now I am sending you. So this is what some people call in this passage, John's Great Commission. The, the famous Great Commission passage at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, says all, Jesus says to his disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. Now, this is, I don't think that this is that exact same scenario. And perhaps John was giving, you know, another commissioning of Jesus here because this is happening on the day of his resurrection. And so people call this John's great commission. He is sending them in the same way that the Father has sent him. Remember the high priestly prayer, John 17, as, I, as you sent me into the world, John says, or Jesus says to the Father, so I have sent them into the world. And then there's this interesting thing where he says that he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so there's all sorts of discussion on this. What does that mean? It's the Holy Spirit, is there two anointings of the Holy Spirit? I think that this is just kind of like a symbolic way of saying here, the Spirit is coming. He, he's talked to them about the Spirit. The Spirit is going to come in its fullness on the day of Pentecost. But this is just a way of appointing them for this office that they're going to, uh, to do. And then it says this, this interesting thing. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the sins from any, that, that is withheld. And he's saying this not, he's referencing them in the plural here. So we don't want to take from this some sort of kind of, uh, um, some ideas that these guys then have the authority privately, their own power to do that. I think, uh, that's not the right reading of this. I think the way to understand this is that he has sent them out with this gospel message, this announcement, and to the extent that people hear that and receive that message and believe in it, 
that apostolic message that now they do are, they have uh, the ability to be forgiven for their sins and that the apostles can freely announce that, not because of power within them, because that's what the gospel does. So there's much we, we could talk about this, but I, I want to focus on this part here, that the two times that he says to them as he appears in this room is, peace be with you. Probably the Hebrew word shalom or an Aramaic equivalent. Yes, it's a greeting, but in the new covenant, it means so much more. It's not just peace. Good to see you. How are you doing today? But it's no peace has been granted to you. Reconciliation with God, the enmity that, that you were in as a sinner against God has now been reconciled and you are now at peace with God. I think that's behind this. This is why Paul begins all of his letters, grace and peace to you. Is he just saying, hey guys, no. Grace and peace, two profoundly theological terms. And this is what Jesus says to them. Now keep in mind what has just transpired, just, just a matter of a couple of days prior. Jesus said to them, and he goes, by the way, the hour's going to come, indeed it is coming, when you're going to all be scattered and you will leave me alone, he says. But I'm not alone. The Father is with me. He tells them, you're going to forsake me. Even, didn't we even see the passage where it says, and then as um, they'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered? That's what they did. They took off. Jesus, Jesus said that they would abandon him, despite the fact that he... Uh, protected them by offering himself. Remember this in John 18, when the soldiers show up to arrest Jesus, Jesus says, uh, who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am. And then they all fall back and then they get back up again. And then who are you seeking? And he goes, I told you, I am. And so if you seek me, let these guys go. And they all abandoned him. And Peter at least denied him. Remember the servant girl? Hey, you're one of this man's disciples. I'm not. And a little bit later, the group says to him, hey, aren't you one of, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And, and again, he denied it. I am not. Hey, didn't we see you in the garden? Didn't you cut off my friend's ear? And he denied it again, and the rooster crowed. So think about this. Think about this. This is now the time that Jesus appears to them. You guys abandoned me. I offered myself for you. You guys denied me, Peter, especially you. And he's, we're going to get to this in the next chapter. But especially you. And Jesus doesn't show up with a grudge or an attitude or a little bit of side eye of suspicion. He goes, peace. Brothers. Matter of fact, that's what he told Mary. He goes, tell the brothers. Go tell my brothers. All the love of Jesus here as he appears to his disciples. But this is with Thomas absent. He makes sure, John points that out, that Thomas was not there. And then notice the, the fourth episode or fourth scene in this, uh, this chapter. 
It says, verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, Hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, and notice this kind of like string of things that Thomas gives. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, unless I place my fingers into the mark of the nails, unless I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. But John gives us that as a little bit of a background here to say what happens eight days later. So think of this, this is a week. So this is not Resurrection Sunday. It's the next uh, Lord's Day or the next Sunday, and then it's the day after that. So it's a Monday. They're all gathered to, there together, and Thomas was with them this time. And although the doors were locked, guess what happens? Jesus came and stood among them and said, what does he say? Peace be with you. Again. So Thomas gets to hear it this time. Then Thomas, he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand. Place it on my side. And then he says, do not disbelieve. Believe. And Thomas answered him these amazing words, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him these great words, have you, have you believed because you have seen me? Now, he's not denying, like, you've gotten the evidence and you've come to faith in me. That does no way diminishes the faith. But he does add this. He said, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You ever read some of the historical accounts of the scriptures and you get so immersed in the history and the time and the setting and you could picture yourself there and it's all of this dialogue that's happening to other people at another place and another time. And sometimes we overlook the fact that there's a line in there that's referring specifically to you. That's that line. Blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. Is that you? He's talking about you there. He's talking about you. Thomas initially disbelieves the report gives a whole litany of things that need to happen in order for him to, Jesus, to, to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then a week later, Jesus shows up and he meets his demands. <laughs> he doesn't, doesn't have to do that, but he, he chooses to do that for Thomas. And then Thomas is confessing, what he's confessing there is the deity of Christ. Once again, you have the scriptures telling us clearly that Jesus is God because it's coming on the lips of Thomas who says, my Lord and my God is calling this risen Savior Jesus Christ standing there in his glorified body, and he calls him God. And then Jesus offers this blessing that comes to all of us who, without having the benefit of what Thomas sees, believe anyway. So let me give kind of like a little interlude about coming to faith in Jesus. This is from Murray Harris. He lists four different routes to faith here one is through christian evidences right john seeing the linen verse 8 right and he saw and he believed so through christian evidences one is through uh through ignorance and disillusionment but then hearing the voice of jesus that's mary verses 11 through 18 sometimes you come through the route of faith through doubt Many of you know the story of uh, like Lee Strobel, 
for instance, right? The famous atheist journalist at the Chicago Tribune whose wife became a Christian and he set out to disprove the whole thing only to ultimately surrender to the truth of all of it and surrendering his life to Christ. So sometimes faith comes through doubt. And sometimes it comes through just the eyewitness testimony of subsequent believers, and that's us, to those who hear. Notice all of it there. Seeing, touching, hearing. For those of us, it comes through hearing. Which all leads us to the, to the purpose of John's gospel, doesn't it? This is the famous, and I think we looked at these verses at the very beginning of this series because we wanted to start the series with where John was going and what his purpose was. And he gives a clear purpose statement for why he is writing. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. These would be a great one to set to memory. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may, there's notice the so that, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Don't you sometimes wish you could have, we could have heard more stories about what happened with Jesus? John tells us there's a whole lot more that I, we just can't include in here. The whole entire world could be filled with books about what Jesus did and what he had said. I often wish that I could be there in this period of time with Jesus and his disciples. In Luke's gospel, it, it says that he went and he showed them, he taught them, he went back to the beginning Beginning in Genesis, beginning with Moses, he began to show them in all the scriptures the way that the scriptures were teaching about him. And he just mentions this in comment, you know, just kind of this passing comment. If there's one thing I wish, I wish I could be there to hear all of the, the interbiblical, intercanonical connections that Jesus was making. You could see those in some of like Paul's letters and the letter to the Hebrews and Peter does this too. Every chance I get, and you hopefully have seen this in some of the sermons too, is how all of what we read in the New Testament, all, it's all connected. Oh man, I wish I could be there. But it's not necessary. It's, we have all that we need. John says many other things could be written. And there, there were lots of things that are not written in these books. But what you do have written in this book is so that you may believe. There's many routes to faith. But the most important thing, so how you come to faith doesn't really matter. It might be very, it might vary, it might, uh, you might have come to faith from when you were early, little, and never remembered anything different. For, for some of you, it might come as a gradual process as you come to understand more of them. For some, it is our confessional statement says it comes at riper years. But we're all the same. It's the same salvation. And it's all, it doesn't matter what route you took. All that matters is that you do believe. Did you come to Jesus? Did you believe? 
Did you have faith so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ? Now, let me just clarify here again. What, is, what do we mean by belief here? And uh, a lot of the Reformation era scholars kind of said, broke this down for us. And they use these three Latin terms, noticia, essensus, and fiducia. You've heard me talk about this before. Noticia is this, what's the bare fact? Tell me the, the fact that needs to be believed. And then a census is going, I hear that fact and I agree with it. And then the third one is, not only do I hear it and agree with it, I trust that. I lean on that. That saving faith. Right? Even demons believe. They can assent that Jesus is the Son of God. But it's trusting in it, trusting in him. That's what's most important. That's why all this was written. That's why John had gone to such great detail to record the major, these major events from Jesus' life. And he could have included a whole lot more. But it was all written down. All We started this series back in January. We've gone through 52 weeks through John's gospel. And every word we have read all has one stated end goal that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And oh, what a blessing that is to believe. Here's what our confessional statement says about saving faith. This comes from chapter 14, paragraph 2, on saving faith. And we'll close with this before we come to, to, to the Lord's table. By this faith, Christians believe to be true everything revealed in the word recognizing it as the authority of God himself. They also perceive that the word is more excellent than any other writing and everything else in the world because it displays the glory of God in his attributes, the excellence of Christ in his nature and his offices, and the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his activities and operations. So they are enabled to entrust their souls to the truth believed. They respond differently according to the context of each particular passage, obeying the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and the one to come. But the principal acts of saving faith focuses, focus directly on Christ accepting receiving and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. If this is not true for you, I implore you, even now, that as you hear this message, that the Spirit would even be working in your hearts now to draw you to repent of yourself and to trust in this magnificent, loving Savior. But for those of us who do believe, what a wonderful truth this is. That it's just through saving faith that accepting that, receiving Christ, and resting on Him. I love that resting. It's not, and not clinging to Him, like resting on Him. For justification, sanctification, eternal life by virtue of the eternal covenant. That we have been reconciled to God through him. Amen.
And having heard that word, the word of God, that like Jesus himself acknowledging the words that are in Deuteronomy, the man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We have heard this word. And hopefully that word that we have taken in is nourishing to our souls. That word of the gospel of Christ. So too, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're nourished by that gospel. That Jesus connected the work of his of his gospel, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, the new covenant that we now have with God. He's tangibly given us a way to receive that. And we get to share that now. And so I want to, uh, us, for us to stand, I'll pray, and then we'll take these uh, elements back to our seats and we'll partake of them together. And if, they, if you are a Christian, that this table is for you. If you have not professed faith in Christ, well, why not today? But if you are a Christian, this table is for us. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have fed us with your word and now you feed us with this ordinance that Christ has given us to remind us of his work and to nourish us with the truth of the gospel. We know that he is spiritually present here with us by faith in him. And so we joyfully come to celebrate that work and receive it with gladness. And so we give you thanks and praise for feeding us. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Friends, come to the table.
Brothers and sisters, let's hear the words of the institution of our Lord's Supper. That the Lord Jesus, on the night of his arrest, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And friends, I invite you to stand as we pray this closing prayer together. Let's say these words. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. To him and to you and to the Holy Spirit be honor and glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Peace be with you. And also with you.